hello and welcome back and in today's episode we talked to Crystal Lim Lang who went from training to be a lawyer to an investment banker and then decided to have a career switch again and went into the education sphere. So stay tuned to find out more about this incredible woman. Hi Auntie Crystal and welcome to Lunch with Auntie. Hi Hannah, so great to have you doing this. Oh thank you. Um, so just to start off, how about you tell us a little bit about you know yourself and what you're doing now and what you did because you kind of made a bit of a tr career change a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, so how I know you, Anna, how I know your mommy is, is that uh, I used to be in investment banking so um, mm -hmm. uh, and I made this big life transition into education, personal growth and now running leadership training, um, my own leadership training company. And uh, even before investment banking, actually, I, uh, I studied law. So I actually have never been in a job that I have had the hard skills for or the qualifications for. <laughs> but somehow my life just kind of opened up different opportunities. Um, and I've uh, had that kind of like can-do attitude that's just led to me saying yes to things before I even know how to do them and then kind of backfilling in <laughs> the skills that I need afterwards. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. So how was that transition? So from like going into law, which most people would say, I don't know, like I think the impression a lot of people I know get is like kind of when you're on the law track, you're on the law track, it's really difficult to kind of switch out. So how did you make that transition, and then how did you make that tr second transition, something completely yeah. different? I know, it's so funny. So how my, I ended up um, going from law to investment banking was actually all due to a sausage roll. Really? <laughs> and yeah, so uh, I was in England studying in my second year of law school, and as you know, English food, uh, canteen food can be very, very terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, you know, right? So when I was in my second year, I remember one day, it was very cold, it was winter, I was in North England, Durham, and it was freezing cold, and I was very, very hungry, so I was going to the um, uh, dining hall when I suddenly saw a small little meeting room that was open uh, next to the dining hall, and there were these delicious smells of sausage rolls coming from it, so I snuck into that room, and it was all dark, but I could see that some caterer had laid out all these trays of canapes and hors d'oeuvres, and I started like stealing some of these sausage rolls. So I was like stuffing my face and my pockets with, the, with these, you know, ill-gotten treats. And then suddenly the lights went on, and I heard this voice behind me say, young lady, what do you think you're doing? So I jumped, and then I turned around, and turned out to be an, an investment banker in a pinstripe suit and he said like what are you doing here and then i started just making up a story so it was like oh you know i'm here and i'm trying to like sample food and i'm doing a survey and i was just like making up some stuff <laughs> and he listened to all of this and he said to me you know i don't believe a word of what you said but you are really good at telling stories so you should be an investment banker and he gave me his card <laughs> wow, that's and incredible. He, I know, and he said, like, investment banking is all about telling stories. It's about telling good stories, persuading people to come along with you uh, for the ride. And, you know, it, it, this is something that is, is quite a rare ability. Um, so he persuaded me to come to London, to Liverpool Street in London, uh, to uh, UBS, so what was mm -hmm. then known as Warburg uh, Dylan Reed. 
and uh, interview. And he said, well, well, we'll pay for your train fare. We'll put you up in a hotel. So I was like, oh, why not? It's a free, it's kind of a free weekend. I wasn't serious about it. I just thought I'd go along for fun. And then when I walked into the office, I remember just being like gobsmacked. It was so beautiful. It was so big. It was so glamorous and sophisticated. It was a huge headquarters and everyone seemed like really important and well-dressed and stuff. So I was a bit like starry-eyed. And I went for the interview and I blagged my way through it. And, you know, I didn't know anything about finance whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, I just had this attitude like, yeah, I'm curious. I'm eager to learn. I'm, I, I, I'm confident that I can pick it up. And they said, okay, go upstairs and do this numeracy test. And I went upstairs. And then I came downstairs again. And they said, um, okay, we want to see you for another follow-up interview. And that's when I actually said to them, you know what? You guys just said that investment banking is about making good decisions, making fast decisions. And, like, you know, I haven't got the time for oh. this because I'm based in North England. So, like, if, if you know, if you want to hire me, you should be able to have enough data points to make a decision by now. Uh, and then they just said, okay, well, well, we'll give you a call afterwards. And I got a call, like, maybe just a couple of days later, and they said, you got a job. So, wow. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it wasn't a job job because I was still studying. It was an internship. But then when they told me the amount of the salary, I remember nearly falling off my chair. It was something like 8,000 Singapore dollars. It was something like 2,000 plus pounds, and the exchange rate was like 3 to 1 back then. Yeah. And I, I remember looking at the law internships, and they were like one-fourth or one-third of that. So I must say that, you know, when you're 18 years old, and this 19 years old, this opportunity comes to you, you know, my, my first thought was like, yeah. I'm gonna yeah. go and I'm going to see what this is about because like I'm curious as to what on earth kind of job could possibly pay that much and to an like, intern what, yeah what, what is it that you're going to do so so that was how it, I, I got started in investment banking I went in for a summer internship at the end of the internship I was so you know kind of like in ingrained in the team I was doing lots of different things this was during the dot-com era yeah and they had, a lot of bankers had actually left Sorry, a lot of the bankers actually left the firm to um, start off their own dot-coms. So they were short-handed and I became a little bit indispensable. And then they offered me a full-time job at the end of that internship. And that's wow. how I got it. No, that's incredible. And I love what you, you say about like storytelling. Because I suppose in some ways it's come a little bit full circle with almost what mm -hmm. you're doing now. Because you still oh, are yeah. like storytelling but in like a completely different format. And it's about education. <laughs> so how do you... Oh, sorry. I think that storytelling is um, such an underrated, undervalued skill. I look at what we're teaching kids today in the mm -hmm. education system. We're teaching things like quadratic equations and logs and like, you know, factorials and mm -hmm. like how to form an oxbow lake, lake and things like that. And it's like, yeah. <clears throat> I think to, to myself, like, why are we not teaching like storytelling, influencing, persuasion, sales? Because there's not a single job that exists today that does doesn't need those skills. Even if you're an academic and you never have anything to do with the commercial world, you still have to write grant proposals. You yeah. still have to make presentations. You still have to convince stakeholders. You still have to like be a good storyteller. I, I don't care what job you're doing. There needs to be some element of influencing and persuading other people. Yeah, definitely. Like even academics have to convince people of their papers. That kind of is the point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, no, so that's really, really interesting. And then so now you ended up in an education space. Mm -hmm. 
So yes, how was that jump? Well, because investment banking seems like really kind of, you know, classic, um, high pressured, no sleep kind of job to something that you know you completely start on your own and you're not kind of working under people anymore you're not in this big bank you're kind of working mm -hmm. on your own with your husband um and how did you make that jump yeah so when i was in um uh, banking i oh sorry i should kind of back up a little bit so when i was uh i, I made this kind of like quarter life I had this quarter life kind of crisis where I got a bit bored and burned out from investment banking and, uh, and that was when I decided to set up my own business and you remember I moved to Australia on yes. the farm and, and I set up my own kind of retreats business and that really focused on personal growth and transformation at a time where very few people knew about mindfulness or it was even at a time where doing yoga wasn't as popular as it is today. Yeah. So. Um, during that time, we started talking about mindfulness and meditation and taking care of yourself. And lots of people were like, oh, what's this like airy fairy kind of woo stuff? <laughs> but I think like people who are more like um, senior in leadership, more forward thinking, it started um, really resonating with them. This theme of personal transformation, personal growth, um, social emotional intelligence. So um, one of my clients was um, the chairman of a huge sort of human capital firm, uh, mm -hmm. a search consultancy. And he put me in touch with the National University of Singapore. And, uh, you know, basically uh, his, uh, his idea was that I should take this personal growth work. And instead of doing it just with people who were quite old and like CEOs in their 60s and 70s, um, he suggested that I start doing this with our youth. Yeah. And doing it with people who were like an earlier stage of their life because, you know, he was saying that Im imagine if young people had these tools, it would make such a huge difference earlier on and it may even like change the course of many people's lives. Yeah. So this is when I started talking to the National University of Singapore that he, he in his own way, he had introduced me to his uh, head of his office, Elaine, and Elaine then was on the board of trustees for the Singapore, uh, for National University of Singapore. And then we started talking and university essentially said to me like, hey, do you want to come on board and help us be a change agent? Because the problem is that in Singapore, we have so many great smart uh, kids and they are smart mm -hmm. in terms of academics but then when they go into the real world and, and meet all this volatility uncertainty co complexity this ambiguity this what we call VUCA um, they really fail to struggle they can't uh, I mean to, to thrive they really uh, can't handle the ambiguity they need to know which way to go which direction what the, the answers because that's the way the education system has trained them so the university said well it's a little late uh, when they are in university to uh, undo uh, all this damage, but we still have to put in our best effort and try to prepare them for the real world they're going into. Yeah, no, I think that's really like fascinating because you know I'm someone who's been in kind of the more local system, seen it, been in the international system. So I think that's great because you went from kind of affecting change for people that are in their later stages of their career to actually affecting change for people who are just starting their career which I think is really, really amazing and says a lot. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about gender. It's kind of one of the topics that I always like to bring up. Um, sure. And is there any time, like, in, like instantly, because I'm very, like, I stereotype sometimes, I, I'm flashing back to investment banking, but um, uh -huh. is there any time where 
you didn't feel like that a woman put being a woman put you at a disadvantage and how did you learn to cope with that yeah this is a really interesting one um i tend to think of gender not so much as you know what your genitals tell you but really it's like in a spectrum of masculine energy and feminine energy yeah so for masculine energy i'm talking about more that kind of go dynamic doing kind of structure kind of achieving kind of energy Mm -hmm. um that kind of upwards and uh you know uh um, kind of goal achieving kind of uh, orientation and when I think about feminine energy I think more about the relational more about the um, ability to go within to uh, connect to other people to be really present going from doing into being and uh, you know having uh, using more of your kind of emotional intelligence and your uh, even your body wisdom rather than just your logic and, and your analysis. Um, so, and in fact, it's interesting because my kids uh, who are a little younger than you, Hannah, mm-hmm. they are so you know interested in, in gender and the way they look at gender isn't like male versus female, two things. It's like 16 different kinds of things. It's like, you know, it's a male that identifies as a female that has the this or that as transitioning to this or whatever. Yeah. And they've got like so many different definitions of, of, of gender and I think it's actually more useful to think about it in terms of, of like um, masculine energy and feminine energy so for me um, personally I have always been very comfortable around males and male energy because I'm very comfortable yeah. with my masculine energy I was the kind of person that when I was a uh, when I was started investment banking, I was one of the only uh, females in the office, and uh, mm-hmm. mostly like ninety percent of bankers are males, and um, most of them were white. Uh, you know, yeah. very few of them were, were Asian and, and female and young. Most of them were old white blokes. You know, so <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you know, because I'm very in tune with masculine energy in my uh, and that sort of thing I could blend in really well I went out with them for drinks I could make the inappropriate jokes as well I could give as good as it takes I could be un-PC just like them I could say things that scandalize or shock them even more and they, they were like they would try to like shock me and I would just be like doubling down raising the ante you like you yeah that's weird <laughs> like, let me tell you what's freaky and you know and very swiftly they just started embracing me as one of the boys I would go out with them you know uh, for drinks for even really inappropriate things like looking back now like you know on that culture we would go out for like you know uh, kind of after hours entertaining KTV all kinds of weird things uh, and I would be one of the guys uh, yeah I was there so uh, it, it was also you know but I also on the other hand saw a lot of women who were not used to dealing with masculine energy and who were much more kind of like um, you know, uh, more comfortable being around uh, other females or didn't quite know how to handle that kind of like uh, more um, alpha male kind of behavior, um, you know, and they really and they really struggled. So then what's interesting is that I developed this attitude, which is kind of now looking back, kind of misguided notion that, oh, yeah, I don't know what these women are, are complaining about because, like, it's really no big deal. Uh, and, you know, I used to have this kind of attitude that, uh, yeah, I don't like you being pegged as a feminist or, or things like that because, you know, I don't really feel it was that big a deal. But then 
one day I realized that this was just because I came from a position of privilege. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so much of, of my privilege had blinded me towards the things that I had. I had the advantage of an education that gave me a lot of confidence. I had the advantage of, like, you know, getting lucky, lucking out and mm-hmm. also, um, you know, having the opportunity to go into investment banking and learning how to kind of, like, dance uh, with all these, like, different alpha males. Uh, you know, I had this kind of, like, um, family uh, conditioning that enabled me to believe in my, myself. And uh, my mom always told me, you can do anything you want to. Like, my mom was really gritty, really tough, so I learned a lot yeah. of stuff from her. And then what I also realized is that, um, you know, uh, when people talk about the patriarchy um, and how the patriarchy oppresses um, the females, right? Um, I realized that actually patriarchy isn't about males. It's about a certain kind of masculine structure uh, way of thinking. So uh, I realized that actually I was part of the patriarchy, even though I yeah. was a female. Yeah, so I was enabling the patriarchy. I was very much part of it by acting like them and like in in, in fact think, uh, endorsing lots of attitudes like you gotta be tough, sleep is for the week, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you cry, if you're cry, you're a pussy, you know all this stuff. So I was just really part of the patriarchy. It didn't it didn't matter so much that I was born a female, but the fact was that I was functioning as part of it. So that's what I mean by. I don't think gender is as simple as are you a male, are you a female? It's really like how much are you like in uh, that masculine structure in your in your masculine, and how much are you able to uh, be in your feminine and have a good integration of both different types of energies. No, that's really really interesting. I never thought of it that way. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, no worries. And I was and just I actually as a fine sorry, I was just saying oh no, that continue. I actually find I was actually find as I get older. And uh, as I move um, into leadership positions, like when I was running a team of 52 at the National University, mm-hmm. um, I found that, that actually it really required me to focus a little bit more on my feminine sort of um, uh, powers. So yeah. uh, it, it, it required me to move more into being able to be empathic with people, be really present with people when there were difficult situations, because the higher you grow as a leader, the less it is about your individual um, contributions, uh, like, you know, being able to deliver a really amazing piece of work. It's not about that anymore. When you become a big lead, uh, uh, a senior leader, it's about how can you empower other people to make the work? How can you support them? And how can you iron out conflict? How can you smooth over difficult situations? And that becomes, you know, it's a real shift from the masculine to the feminine. Because in, yeah. when you start off your career, you may need a lot of that masculine kind of proof I can do this I can get this task done I can accomplish these results I can check all the stuff done off my to-do list but as you move up the, the, the ladder it's all about can you be present with somebody who's going through a hard time can you motivate your employees can you really resolve conflict uh, in really sticky situations deal with angry clients and stuff like that and that's a lot of that comes from like your feminine uh, sort of uh, uh, wisdom Okay, yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, so usually I ask the question, what books have you been reading? But you've written a book. So I think <laughs> I'd use this time to just chat a little bit about your book and what it was like becoming an author and a really successful author at that. 
Well, uh, well, we we are really happy that that Deep Human uh, received the kind of uh, success that it did. But its success to us is really, um, for me, I did I define it as making a difference to people's lives um, and unlocking their potential. And what uh, what we did with this book is that when we started off our business, we were primarily doing B two B. So yeah. we were only training like corporate. So only if you were the employee of a company that had a contract with us, could you kind of benefit from what we were doing or if you were a student at NUS. But as we started doing more public speaking, we had so many people write to us and say like, oh, I want to learn more about what you're teaching. How can I do your course if I'm not, you know, a member of that company? Um, so that's when we realized, hey, everyone's really trying to solve this problem of how to stay engaged and, um, you know, relevant in this brave new world. So we, we tried to look for what were the five biggest super skills that everybody needed to know. Like, almost like this is like your toolbox as you cross the bridge uh, from this old world into this brave new world that we're, you know, now, in, yeah. uh, that, that is now emerging. What is that toolbox that you need to kind of tuck underneath your arm as you walk across this bridge? So we kind of uh, did a lot of research and focused down on five um, key super skills. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is uh, focus and attention, which is you know the ability in this world of constant distractions to be able to focus your mind on what serves you rather than being pulled into directions of whatever Apple or Google wants you to see. Yeah. Um, the, the second skill then uh, is. Um, about awareness and this uh, self-awareness that we all need so understanding like what you need in order to improve yourself how the world perceives you getting really clear about your uh, values your um, what gives you meaning and purpose because we find a lot of people even people from uh, people in their 40s to their 60s a lot of them are still struggling with like who am I what who do I want to be like what kind of uh, contributions I want to make to the world. So self-awareness is key. Um, then the third uh, super skill yeah. is uh, empathy. And empathy is really super important because it's one of the biggest um, divides between humans and robots. So empathy is a deeply human skill. It's the ability for a human to build trust and connect to another human by putting themselves in their shoes. So um, machines can say things like, oh, I, I understand how you feel, but they don't really feel and understand another human like humans, yeah. right? So in, the, in the brave new world where I think now AI and robots are taking over more than 50% of all the work tasks that are out there today, mm-hmm. uh, humans really need to double down on these very key humanistic skills, especially empathy, because like, Humans, no matter how sophisticated robots get, um, there is some level of humans always wanting to to to, to trust another human or be uh, connected and in connection with another human because we're all mammals. Yeah. So we have this like super uh, important need for that human connection. Like you can see with those premature uh, babies, you know, if they don't get uh, that skin to skin contact, they actually die. It's called failure to thrive. Yeah. Right. So uh, that's empathy. The fourth skill, um, second last skill, is complex communication. So mm-hmm. by that we mean the sort of complex influencing, uh, 
you know, persuading, conflict uh, resolution, giving feedback kind of skills that, you know, as long as there's humans in the world, there's bound to be conflicts. You just yeah. open Facebook and scroll through and you see like a million bored people starting arguments, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there are a lot of interpersonal complex communication skills are required, especially since, you know, we are living in even more stressful times. And now we're dealing with so many kind of different uh, cultures that you could be on a, a VC and speaking to somebody in Sweden, someone in China, someone in America. Yeah. And, you know, we are working. Work. Work has become so globalized that now we need to almost be experts in how to connect to people from radically different cultures with a sense of uh, sensitivity and cultural intelligence, um, and you know, being able to resolve conflicts with them in a kind of skillful way. Yeah. Um, and then, Lastly, uh, it's adaptive resilience, the last skill we talk about. And adaptive resilience is really three um, components. Uh, and the first one is being able to pursue your long-term goals and convictions, which means you need to know what those are. The second part of adaptive resilience is bouncing back from the challenges you meet along the way, because there will be many, many challenges. Um, and then the third part of adaptive resilience is um, that learning, the growth, the transformation. So it's not that you're just repeating the same mistake a hundred times, but with every mistake that you make or challenge that you encounter, you're really growing yourself and transforming who you are. Yeah. So those are the five skills that, that we write about. And like since we launched that book, we've had so much positive response. I think every day, uh, every week, if not every day, I receive fan mail from people. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, just yesterday we had one... Oh, a couple of days ago, we had one that was really sweet. It was somebody who picked up a, a U.S. pilot. I think it was a pilot. And he, you know, was a bit bored because all the planes are grounded at the moment. Yeah. And he had, yeah, and he had picked up a book because he was at a chalet. And, uh, it, you know, it was on the library shelf. And he started reading it. And he was so absorbed in it. He recommended it to all of his friends. And he wrote us this uh, kind of uh, this email from the other side of the world and talking about how it had changed his life. And it was just such a cool thing to, to hear so many people from all around the world, um, you know, reading our little words that we put together. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, well, I'll definitely have your book linked in the description if anyone listening wants to take a look and read it as well. Um, I won't take up too much more of your time, but thank you so much for this. I've absolutely loved hearing your story and it's, really odd because I've like kind of been there like I've known you the last like what I don't know how many years but it's uh, like this what, is 13 14, 14 years 14 yeah I'm turning 18 tomorrow so yeah. um yeah no so it's but it's really different when you actually sit down and ask someone like what do you do and like how did you get there so Thank of course, and I, I've also loved watching you grow and transform it. And I always say to your mom, I say, Hannah's my idol. I want to be like oh. Hannah when I grow up. No. Because, like, you know, I really love your kind of can-do attitude. You never say die. And, like, you know, you're so entrepreneurial. But I've seen you reinvent yourself a million times from your school changes, you know, to, <laughs> to dealing with different social systems and even different countries. So, like, I'm also at awe, in awe of you, Hannah. Like, you've done so much. When I was your age I, I i didn't do like a fraction of the things that you have, have done so far with your life so that's where the podcast kind of ended off thank you so much for listening 
and finding out about Auntie Crystal, who I think is absolutely incredible. To find out more, follow the podcast. I will have also her book linked in the, the description and more links about her. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time.